friends. Welcome to High Notes with Dr. B, a podcast about brave, courageous, risk-taking women. I'm professor, author, speaker, musician, and life coach, and mother of two boys. I want to help us all live courageous lives by challenging you and me about our health, work life, relationships, and spirituality. I will feature guests who will inspire you through their stories and their lives, and I will discuss and review a new book that can change your life or your thinking, and perhaps even get you to read more. My goal is to challenge myself and you to think about the world around us and lead a life that is about changing for the better. To make a room, it requires patience, knowledge, and divine instinct. That, friends, is our guest today, Ashley Renee Watkins. She is a classically trained multi-genre vocalist, songwriter, and teaching artist facilitator. As an artist, she keeps the many layers of her sound present in her vocal delivery with influences from R&B, jazz, soul, and classical always present. The New Orleans-born artist has been based in New York City since 2014, the year she appeared on NBC's America's Got Talent with her opera and multi-genre duo, Act Two. Ashley Renee released her first EP project, Rue, under her artist name, A. Renee, in the fall of 2019. It captures the many experiences and narratives of her as an artist and a woman of color in nod to the neo-soul music style. Ashley Renee has worked nationally as a facilitator over the past several years, serving on the teaching artist faculty of Lincoln Center Education, as well as consulting in arts education and advocacy with cultural institutions and cities throughout the United States. Uh, Ashley, so glad to have you here today. Thank you so much for agreeing to be my very first guest. Yes, what an honor. I'm excited. I'm excited too. I, you know, have loved watching your uh, career. And um, of course, we met at the University of Oklahoma. And um, I was a doctoral student and you were a master's student. And uh, I can't remember, but I know you walked into one of my classes and I was like, who's this new person in the middle of the semester? <laughs> <laughs> well, and there were a couple of you, if, if my memory serves me right, but you definitely stood out to me. Um, and then, you know, I heard you sing and was like, wow, this is an amazing instrument. So tell me what I know, but tell our guest, our audience, what brought you to Oklahoma in the middle of the semester? So I was actually an undergrad when I got there. I was, oh, that's right. Yeah, I was in the in the process of finishing my last year of undergrad, and then um, Hurricane Katrina just came and sort of disrupted life for you know everyone just about on the Gulf Coast. Um, so that brought me to Oklahoma because my university. Um, that I was at Dillard University was under about 10 feet of water for months. Um, Yeah, so I I ended up having a tack on, I think, another semester or so. Um, So it didn't, it wasn't my last year after all (laughs) for undergrad. Mm, Yeah. Mm. 
Yeah, and, and I guess the University of Oklahoma made some sort of special concession for you guys. They right? did. So it was it was three of us that came. Um, and my friend at the time, she was a, a colleague who I knew from undergrad. Um, she was at the University of Oklahoma, Olana, and she um, got the university to think about the students who were gonna be displaced as a result of Hurricane Katrina. So they, and many universities around the nation opened their doors and said, come. Um, so we did, and they're, basically what it did is help us like bypass a lot of that usual admission process. Right. Um, but it was on a temporary basis. If we wanted to stay, then there would be some things we'd have to do to fully, um, sort of come on board to the university, um, which mm -hmm. I opted to do, my colleagues opted to go back to New Orleans. My, mm -hmm. they were friends, more than colleagues. Um, so they opted to go back, I opted to stay, which meant I had to start really figuring out transferring credits and all of that stuff, which is why I had to end up tacking on the um, extra semester. I gotcha. But you stayed at OU and finished a master's degree, correct? Yeah, I ended up uh, getting an opera fellowship uh, for my master's. So I stayed and, and yeah. yeah. Okay. All right. So that's why I remember the, the master's degree because, you know, I, uh, doctoral, I, I can't remember where you were in the process of that, but I was there working on coursework for about four years and, yeah. then, and then, and then left to do the, the rest of the writing and all of that stuff. As they say, ABD, I was ABD when I left there. So, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> so tell me, um, would you say that that experience of Katrina was like the biggest life changer for you? Or would you say other, something else, has been the thing that's pushed you forward and maybe made a big change in your life. I can't imagine that that wouldn't have any impact. Oh, no, I think it was because I really don't know. Um, I, I believe I'd still be singing and I'd be pursuing music, I believe. Mm -hmm. um, but it introduced me to a... Uh, uh, I would say like a bigger, more established system. Dillard University had a really cool voice program, um, but it wasn't, it didn't have all of the full accreditations um, that OU did. And that was a part of, it was a really hard decision um, sure. to not go back. But what sort of made it easier was that um, my immediate family was no longer in the city. So right. it's a big life disruptor. And I, I look at the word disruption in a very different way than I, I used to then. So yeah, what I do you mean? I'm sorry? What do you mean? Um, a disruptor is just, it's, it's literally disrupting something. So not for the good or for the bad, but for the sake of disruption. Um, mm -hmm. And I think the outcome is sort of determined by the intent of the disruption. Um, mm -hmm. And for me, I felt like I was having my own sort of personal conversation prior to Katrina, actually Hurricane Katrina. I had been having an ongoing conversation with my voice teacher about transferring. Mm. And she was encouraging me to transfer to um, a university that 
had a little bit more uh, information flowing through it because she really thought that I had a shot at uh, a career in opera specifically at the time. And while that program had much of what I needed, especially a voice teacher like her and a really strong choral program, um, it just didn't have the resources to really mount opera productions and mount like substantial opera scene production. So she wanted me to have that experience as early on as possible in my studies. So she was pushing me to transfer and I hadn't transferred and I, I made it to my senior year. So there was at the time, no reason to transfer. Here's our first siren. Um, <laughs> Yay, New York. <laughs> uh, right. So there was no, um, real reason to transfer at that point. And then this big life disruptor came along, Hurricane Katrina, which I don't say it was a, a blessing or a curse. It was just something that happened. And I made some choices to, to go to Oklahoma. Some choices were made for me kind of like divinely. Um, but then there was some choice making for me to sort of be at Oklahoma and recognize that, oh, this is the space my teacher had been telling me about. Maybe I should stay, which was a very scary and controversial decision. I had established um, a lot for myself at Dillard. I was on the um, the student, I'm forgetting the, the full name of it, but it's like the advisory committee um, that sits mm -hmm. between the board of trustees and the, and the student body. I was on that. I was one of the student representatives on the um, student uh, discipline disciplinarian board. So I was, mm -hmm. I represented sort of the student voice when there were kind of minor, minor to major, but not criminal maybe infractions that students had committed that could affect whether they stayed at the university or not. So I got to be a part of those conversations about really offering from a student perspective um, the disciplinary action that was taken against students at the university. Right. So, you know, I was doing that. I was a peer leader. Um, plus I was, I had just become president of the choir, the university choir, which was major <laughs> because mm. the university choir was a, just a major generator for the university. It generated a lot of donations. We did national tours. Um, it was a highly visible body for the university and I had just become president of it and, wow. you know, was a member of the female quartet, which I had worked really hard with my, uh, court cohort, quartet cohort to really amp up the female quartet, um, and just really build on that existing legacy that it already had. It was the first year we had ever sang at the major Christmas concert and all these like, there was a lot of momentum for me at Dillard University. So it was a major decision to say, I'm gonna stay at this university and start over essentially. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Well, one thing I, I definitely have noticed about you is once you kind of get a little bit of momentum, you really, you really go, what do you, what do you attribute that to? I mean, so for those of you who, who um, haven't 
listened to uh, anything so far. Like I have posted some stuff in, in the uh, podcast notes or whatever, but, or if you haven't followed like some of the links and stuff that I've put on my own Facebook uh, of her music, um, I can just tell you that n- number one, you know, being on America's Got Talent, right? That gave you a little bit of momentum. And I want to talk about that in just a minute. Mm-hmm. But the other thing is, is that you moved to New York City and that's another huge choice. And I would say, you know, just from an outsider looking in, I, you strike me as a person who's like, I don't, I'm not going to worry at all about what people are saying. And I'm not going to worry about the fear that could take a hold of me in these decisions. I'm going to be courageous. I'm going to be brave and I'm going to step out and I'm going to do this thing. And um, if it works awesome, if it doesn't, I've learned some lessons. You strike me as that way. Am I right or am I off? I think so, but I think it takes some time for someone to sort of be a mirror for you to, (laughs) to fully (laughs) <laughs> recognize because it's like when you're just kind of doing you're just doing <laughs> yeah but but I mean you did like move to New York City right yeah so that's scary in and of itself I mean you got to figure out how you're going to pay rent you've got to figure out I mean, that's not a city where you can go you can go rent an apartment for six hundred dollars that's you know that's huge in and of itself because of all the expenses that come with a city like that and so tell tell me about that I mean what what made you decide like I'm going to New York City and and I, I'm assuming you must have had some roommates at first or or what tell us about that because I imagine a lot of young listeners that listen to this especially if there are any artist types or musicians or actresses that hear this they're going to be thinking of like we all have at one point or time I would like to go live in New York City. So tell tell us about that. Well, I will say the first time that I said out loud, I'm going to go to New York City um, was about four years prior to when I actually went to New York City. Um, mm-hmm. My aspiration was to go and be the artist that's saying, I'm going with two nickels to rub together and I'm going to make something <laughs> happen that way. Um, but thankfully I'm a a woman of faith as well. So I was very sort of in prayer about it and it just, it didn't pan out. And I'm so glad it didn't because Mm. when I did move to New York city, I moved with a momentum, um, that I would not have had. I moved with additional information. Um, Mm. I became a collector of information, like a conscious collector of information, while I was, I, I was sort of waiting to move to New York. So I had this kind of lull in Dallas. I ended up after finishing at Oklahoma, moving to Dallas for a while, moved back home, did that thing where you move in with your parents and you feel kind of cardy about it for a little bit while you're trying to figure it out. <laughs> I was auditioning for things and getting some yeses and some nos. And What ended up happening is that I started a new parallel career in Dallas that has been a part of that, what has made me feel more and more brave and brazen about um, the decisions that I make. So I stumbled. There's a lot of stumbling that has happened along my way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or there's with yeah. a, a hurricane or, or whatever. For sure. I For stumbled sure. Yeah. into this field of teaching artistry. Um, mm-hmm. And I literally stumbled into it. 
because I was working as an administrative assistant at a mega church in Dallas. Um, and I did mm-hmm. that kind of work for about two years, um, yeah. some kind of administrative work. And I wasn't fully happy with it. I loved the the use of my brain, but I didn't love the sort of monotony of it. Um, and the, the reach, I didn't feel like I had much reach in that kind of work. So I stumbled into this fellowship in Dallas um, with this organization called Big Thought. And I say stumbled because I heard about the application at like a a weight, it was like those weight shakes. Um, It was like a health product, a healthy shake party. (laughs) And at someone's house and this girl was like, hey, there's this organization that comes in and does after school work. At my um, at my school, she was a teacher. She said, "You should look into it. You're an artist, and it's artists that come in." And I didn't know what that was at the time, so she sent me the link for the application, and I kind of mindlessly applied for it. Um, I've always had like a knack for writing. Mm-hmm. Um, and that comes, I think, from like my dad. My dad's always been like a creative writer, poet kind of person um so we've always my brother and I both my brother was actually an English major just had a knack for it so I could write my way into things even without fully (laughs) seeing what it was at first so I wrote this pretty strong application I I think maybe and I got um picked up in this fellowship and I spent two years um two additional years in Dallas just learning the field of teaching artistry um, and what it was. And at that same time in those two years, I was re- really reconnecting with um, Olana, who I had sort of lost touch with um, after she moved to New York. And I was at um, just sort of in Dallas trying to figure it out. So it was kind of a simultaneous action that happened that I really started to take hold of this this idea of teaching artistry and I started to connect with some institutions here in New York through my job to see what kind of work they were doing in New York and at the time I couldn't fully envision myself here and it was really intimidating but I just kept those relationships open so whenever I'd have an audition I'd come and I'd have lunch with someone at um, Lincoln Center or at some of these other places, whenever I would come into the city. Um, So I didn't know that I was learning like networking and relationship building at the time. Um, And at the same time, I was starting to um, have these conversations with Olana about how we could sort of co-support each other in supporting our dreams financially. We both wanted to go, um, and I've, we've told this story a lot, but we we both wanted to like pursue careers as opera singers and one path was to go to Germany or Europe. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. right, and audition. So sort of- For those of you who don't know, that's something that opera classical singers do, that they, they either stay in the States and try to do New York or a big East or West Coast city, or they go to Germany uh, because it's the most um, uh, welcoming to American singers that are classically trained mm-hmm. in Europe. And from there, you can jump off to other countries. 
So go ahead. I just wanted to give people an idea of what that. Yeah, no, absolutely. So that's what we were sort of planning for. Um, And around the same time that I started to have to come to New York to look at some of these other institutions, which I thought would be short-term jobs um, that I would just do here, possibly. Um, Olan and I were developing Act Two and sort of taking some chances behind the scenes and doing some auditions for America's Got Talent um, before they, they have a whole process. It's a whole season. Just like any other television show, there's a lot of taping that has to happen before they can put the actual um, show out. So we had started to tape for that. And it would just so happen that when I would need to be in town to tape for the show, I need to be in town to do some kind of process um, with Lincoln Center, who I had started to sort of set my eye on to say, this is the organization I want to try to move to New York and work for. Um, so it just so happened that it was simultaneously happening. Um, but I say even just like even the, 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 it's all about things that sort of disrupt your plans in life and the decisions that you make around those disruptions. So act two was a disruption because I was auditioning prior to that and doing other things, um, Lincoln Center was sort of a, that wasn't my plan. I wanted to move to New York and just sing full time. But that wasn't, that wasn't what needed to happen. So there was just, it's constant like decision-making. There's momentum, sure. And everybody can have momentum and momentum can really push you in any direction. Push you Mm -hmm. forward or backwards or to the side or whatever. But I think there's something to be said about, um, I have a very supportive family that I I had been in constant conversation with throughout everything. Um, The reason why Act Two even formed in the sort of organized way that it formed in, we started with an LLC before we ever even came out publicly with anyone. We had business stuff taken care of is because I had been consulting with my brother who was um, fresh out of law school at the time. So really like feeling his attorney skills (laughs) and telling us sort of like what we needed to do business wise. Um, I had a mother that was really like, have a mother that still is pushing me to do the things that make me uncomfortable and that I'm, I'm gonna question, but like really pushing me to like, apply for this, go for that and see what happens. See, I, I love that because I'm not a big believer in the saying that, you know, you need to focus on one thing and do it really, really well and be an expert in that. Like I, I, I get that. And I'm, I consider myself an expert in, in a voice mm-hmm. and has studied enough, you know, vocal pedagogy and all that kind of stuff that I, I consider myself an expert in that. And I go to conferences and read books and all mm-hmm. that, but but I also think that um, that only buys you so much momentum and, and that and that only buys you so much success. And that if you're a person who is um, multi-talented, has more than one interest, that if you throw a lot of spaghetti against a wall, a lot of it's some of it's going to stick. Mm-hmm. Maybe not a lot of it, but some of it's going to stick. And, and if you can then weave a life of 
interesting things or success in a variety of different kinds of things because you've you've taken that spaghetti that sticks and weave it. Uh-huh. You 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 have uh I, I think in my opinion a fuller a fuller life that's really colorful and really exciting and and can push you into ways that you didn't know that you were capable. Right. So I I love that you like throw a lot of spaghetti mm-hmm. against the wall and sort of see what happens. And I love that your mom is your champion. That's that's so great and so rare for people in the arts to have a parent or parents that are like, yes, go be an artist. Most of them are operating out of fear, right? And we see it all the time mm-hmm. in the audition uh, process at university where people are saying, you know, I don't want my child to starve and I'd really rather them major in something else, a little more maybe hard science or business, but not in the arts because I'm afraid they're going to live in my basement the rest of my life, right? So I love that your parents are giving you permission to like do something that's not the norm where you're not going to get a gold watch in 25 years, right? No, I mean, absolutely. I mean, I, I didn't even talk about my dad, but my dad, since I was younger, he used to... um he used to preach regularly and he would have to go to these different churches and he would drag me around to every church that he went to and be like, sing, 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 like let people hear you. And that's always been his, his thing for me is just to like be heard and make sure that I let people hear me and know that I'm, I'm there. I forgot that you and I have in common that we're both preachers. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so, yeah, singing in church is a big, big deal. Yeah. Well, so, yeah, I, I, I really love that. What was be, uh, being on America Has Talent like? Like, what was that? Did it change your life in the way that you thought it would? Or because, I mean, we, wa- we watched you when, mm-hmm. when you were on there. Like, we, we watched you and Alana, and I love her mm-hmm. um, and her voice. You know, you guys rock, and you guys had this such a cool look, right? Yeah. Like, people out of the oh, this is going to be opera. This is going to be, you know, two not very attractive women. And here you guys are. You look beautiful and you're stunning and you've got leather on and you're like pushing that. You're pushing the envelope to make people rethink about what opera is. And I just loved everything about it. But tell me, tell me about that. America's Got Talent was, it was an experience. And I've, I've talked to lots of people who've been on the show and we all have sort of similar, um, reflections on it that Mm -hmm. show for me is my every time I have a doubt about doing something I remind myself that on multiple occasions we either sang for a live audience of like a few thousand couple thousand to a few thousand people Mm -hmm. or we're reminded that at one point we were live with 20 million people viewing us that happens twice Um, so anytime I have a doubt, I'm either reminded by someone who has seen me on that or, or I have to remind myself that you did that and you could do it again. Not only did you do it, but you did it steady. Um, and you didn't allow your, your nerves or anything or your self doubt to take over. You did your job. Um, no matter the outcome, you did your job. Um, the The full process is, it's a process. Um, there's, there's some, 
interesting things that happen sort of behind the scenes that I'm probably still under contract to this day and can't fully disclose. <laughs> That's okay. life away. Um, but that, that was the cool thing for me. It was the, the visibility, the visibility has still benefited us. Um, it's benefited sure. me personally too. Um, it's great mm-hmm. because whenever I work with students, that's something that I I proudly share with them. I shyly share too because I'm not a big braggadocious person. Um, but they often will just kind of look it up and they'll, they'll find me in relation to it and be like, you are on America's Got Talent. And <laughs> it, it's, it's something that I, I, I like for people to know. I like for students to know. Um, because of the amount of of bravery that it takes to take a chance because you are highly visible and it could go really great or it could go really wrong. <laughs> like, yeah. And it's I, a risk. And that's something that I, I really sort of, it's a, it's a tick for me that I use as a, a, a booster whenever I'm having kind of like a, a doubtful moment about my capabilities. Right, 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 right. Yep. It's kind of like a touchstone. We all need uh, some sort of a touchstone. Yeah. And I'm still booking gigs and stuff for fun. They're, those are still happening. We still do concerts based off of that exposure, solely based off of that exposure. Um, so that kind of stuff is happening, but this is like long term, you know. Mm-hmm. Right. So let's transition a little bit to your uh, um, your R&B and soul genre, mm-hmm. which I love, Thank by the you. way. And I, I um, enjoy it so much and downloaded the album when it came out, the, e- the EP. And I, I think it's really, really good. And I think it's original. I don't think it, you know, you, I, there are a lot of people you listen to and you're like, oh, that, well, that's you know, they're sort of mimicking, you know, whoever. Mm-hmm. And I don't, I think you are pretty original. So very original. So um, what made you decide to do that? Mom and brother. <laughs> ah. So it was literally, it was okay. a car ride. Um, I had been, I had met a few producers and things like that, but we were still sort of hot and heavy in the concert work. We were doing, um, Act Two at the time was doing uh, concerts where we were mixing up genres, but not R&B or anything like that. More of mm-hmm. like your expected, you know, jazz, maybe a little mm-hmm. spiritual that hinted towards gospel, um, classical Broadway kind of thing. But I met a few producers and then I went to some um, recording sessions and I really just started to get interested first in like what vocal production was because I could hear harmonies and things like that and I would give some suggestions and then I um, had started like unintentionally writing I was just having you know all the relationship drama ever and I was just <laughs> writing about it the frustrations that's a whole other podcast about having all of those things that happen you know and I was writing mm-hmm. about them and I remember having a friend who's a also a pretty established songwriter performer 
and I ran some stuff by him and he was like, oh, you, you, you're writing music, um, which is oddly enough, because as I think about it, that's the same friend who told me the way that I sang was operatic when I was in high school. It's very interesting that this friend kind of helps me see <laughs> what I'm doing and, mm-hmm. and puts a name to it. Um, yeah, we all need yeah that that's name. really interesting um, as I think about that. But yeah, so he sort of told me that I was writing. And so we started to become more intentional about it. He um, helped me co-write a song. I've never released it. I've, I've fully recorded it, everything. It's just sort of sitting there in the archives because it's not really the style. It didn't come out of the style that I want to sort of speak for me right now. Um, mm-hmm. so it's sitting there. It's a great song. It's just sort of sitting there right now though. Um, right. Yeah. So he sort of helped me see that process and I, I just fell in love with finally having something to say in a primary kind of way. Like, I do think that there's something to being like a secondary creator where you're interpreting, um, I will never, ever take away from that. And I still do that. Um, But there's something to having something original to say. Um, And then having this whole process where you figure out exactly how you want to say it. Um, And I didn't put a, a, all of the advice that came in the beginning was don't assign a style to yourself yet. Just kind of let that come out. Um, and that's what I did. I didn't say I wanted to do R&B or that I wanted to do, you know, soul or that I wanted to do pop or anything. I recorded quite a few songs in different styles. And these are the songs that sort of made it out. Um, right. I definitely, I recorded a whole other EP that I didn't release um, for one reason or another. It just didn't it just wasn't speaking to me as what I wanted to be like my first trot out in the writing. But uh, back to your original question, the the whole reason that it came about was um, I was having a car ride uh, to the airport. I think it was over Christmas break with my brother and my mom. We were leaving my brother's house in Georgia. And I was just sort of talking about my frustration with feeling like where I was in my career and feeling like I had been limiting myself for years and I'd never even thought about recording. And they both were like, well, if you're writing, why don't you record? And I was like, well, I felt for some reason, I felt like I needed permission. I don't know from who, but I felt like I needed permission to do the thing that was really like pressing upon me to do. And my brother was really, really adamant about it, like saying that that made no sense and that if you have something to say and you have something you've created, then, you know, like basically it's your duty to put it out into the world. Um, So he and my mom were the main reason that I started to ask the questions about the possibility of recording and started to assemble like that first team of people that helped me to put out this first wave of recording. Right. Yeah. 
So here's where I'd like to play a little bit of Ashley's music. I think you'll find it uh, original and really moving. This is entitled Box from the album Rue. You can get it on various platforms. love it as much as I do. I think it's great and very, very talented lady. So tell me, then you start doing some open mic nights. Does that come first or does that come during the process of writing? Are you, are you doing open night mics and then doing covers or are you trying to do like your own original music or a little bit of both? The open mics kind of came later in the process. The open mics came when I started to figure out that I really wanted to perform and that I wanted Mm -hmm. to start making a name for myself uh, locally and also like get my legs under me, my performance legs. Um, I did it. Right. Different. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Putting on a costumes one yeah. thing, and you're up there with 40 other people and yeah and there's distance much a lot of distance between you because there's an orchestra and a pit and there's a lot of distance between you and an audience but when you are on a mic in a in a bar right or a club, that's so much more intimate and you are right there so <laughs> yeah. very Yes, it's very exposed. Mm-hmm. And I can tell you my first show, I I thank the people who came and stayed because it was it was interesting. It was definitely a very quick mm-hmm. learning process. I learned about advocating for myself with sound because I couldn't hear mm-hmm. in that first show. And mm-hmm. then when I listen back to some of the clips, you can clearly tell I couldn't hear. Um, and it wasn't mm. horrible, but it wasn't, I knew it wasn't my best, but I didn't even know. I think the open mics help you know what your best is. Um, and it is yeah. covers. I have recently started to, um, and like I'll invite a musician to come and play with me so that I can do an original, um, mm-hmm. or if there's an opportunity to plug in a track. I'll do that, which a lot of right. the open mics now have sound people. They're evolving as well. Oh, okay. Um, mm-hmm. So it's a mixture. It's covers. It's, but the, the, there's a couple of dual, the dual purpose of it is for one, to get your performance game up. And then also to start to build this community slash following um, around you. Right. 
right. And I, I would think that that's been an interesting process in a city like New York where people can choose mm. so and many it's different highly things competitive. and be in different places <laughs> every night. Yeah. Highly of competitive. Of course, yeah. Right? Friendly mostly, but still competitive. Yeah. 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 So how are you, how are you managing, like juggling the opera career, the teaching career, the trying to be an R&B and soul uh, artist, and then a personal life? And I mean, how are you balancing all of that? Um, some days are better than others. Um, <laughs> I have started to make a focused effort to make sure that I'm not losing the opera because it is really easy once you start to incorporate another genre to just sort of let go. Um, but I'm unwilling yeah, sure. to do that. So it helps that I do um, concerts still. Um, Act Two still has concerts. We just did a full-on opera concert in Colorado in that high altitude. And oh, <laughs> a few, awesome. yeah, it was oh a few God. months ago, but I, the, my opera form is still there. I still, um, I get with my voice teacher um, from time to time. I um, am still, I still look at roles. I still teach. So I teach voice still. Um, and then also what I've been doing is it didn't come out in my recordings that much, except for in box, but in my recording, I, I was trying to think about how I could really do this genre fusion and I'm still thinking about it. Mm -hmm. Um, so in my live performances, I often incorporate opera into the live performance um mm-hmm. yeah, no, yeah. yeah so I I uh, and, uh, again like I said earlier it helps when people point things out to you um I had a friend who was telling me he was like do you realize how you're just moving through styles like nothing um and it's that's sort of what happens and I I think that's when I have my greatest joy is when you know if I could take a video clip of myself for 10 seconds of singing and name all the different name that style (laughs) (laughs) that'd be fun right (laughs) it's like that's that's fun singing to me that's free that is you know the industry does make you sort of pick a lane um and sure I can do that in a recording I can give you a straight up R&B recording but in the live performance that's what's fun for me because I think my highest points with audiences has been when I have done some kind of crazy operatic spinning thing and then smooth it out with some R&B and then belt out something and then like do this jazzy kind of sound. Like I think people love that. I love it when I hear it. Mm-hmm. And it's not mm-hmm. like I'm trying. Mm-hmm. It's not like I'm saying, oh, I'm moving to jazz now or I'm doing that. Sure. I think it's, I feel the most free when I allow my voice to do what it naturally wants to do, which you can't do in a recording. Recordings, not in a, um, you know, like a very clean recording where you're doing take after take. Live is a different story. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, I've, I've just really incorporated that opera into every component of my singing where I can 
And then I still, um, if we weren't in the time that we were in, I was actually going to do a role um, in a production in New Orleans. Um, so that'll be postponed mm. for later this year. And I, I did another role, a small role last year. So I, I keep on the performance stage. I still put the costume on. I still sing with the ensemble when I can. Um, but I also am, you know, because I'm in, in the cabin right now, I'm writing. Um, and I still just sort of, I do, I do what I, I literally do what I want to do. Um, yeah. And the teaching just informs it all. It's, I'm not teaching math or anything like that. That's totally disconnected. I, I teach workshops around music primarily. So I do a lot of songwriting because I love to introduce especially young students to songwriting because I think it's liberating mm-hmm. and I think it's one of the greatest forms of self-expression um and then yeah. it supports some of their other like writing skills and things like that and it just asks for multiple parts of their brains to function um sure. so I really love to take students through like the aesthetics of songwriting and I just did a really cool unit in six visits I'm very proud of them and me um and I can't wait to hear the final songs but we sort of went through the whole process of songwriting studied um an artist went to see a performance and then they wrote their own original songs or portions of a song and then we had, um, I had a good friend of mine who's a professional producer engineer come in and we recorded their songs professionally. Um, and, you know, he's going to do his, the, the, the studio magic to, um, to some of it, mm-hmm. but it's going to be like a fully polished thought about lyrical. Some of them sang, some of them rapped. Some of them kind of just spoke it, whatever, whatever way that they wanted to put it out. We worked with that. Um, but they wrote like these really cool songs. And I'm I'm excited and I'm happy to introduce that to students because we're all consumers of music and they're consumers, daily consumers. And so for me, I'm always trying to educate on what it is that you're consuming um, to make you an informed mm-hmm. consumer. Um, so yeah, I, I balance, it all informs each other. So it all kind of melds in there. Um, so the balance is, it's there. The, the personal life is a whole other, <laughs> it, it comes and goes. Yeah. Um, I can be a bit of a workaholic, <laughs> but that it's fine for me. And yeah. it's also work is like a happy, not a distraction, but you know, it's New York is an interesting place to be. Um, it can be a very rewarding place and a very tough place all at once. Um, it's mm-hmm. kind of like that. I went in front of 20 million people kind of thing. It's like, I live in New York and I'm still sane. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yes, I understand. Um, So as we kind of wrap up, I want to ask you a couple of things. Like, what do you think has been the biggest risk you've taken so far to date? 
And um, if you were to go back and talk to your 16-year-old self, what advice would you give her? Jeez, the risk thing is hard because I feel like I've I've taken so many chances. Um, yeah, I I can't even I don't even know because every time I do I haven't even like the consulting work that I do is insane. I'm usually like in front of I had to run a uh I my boss put me in front of an entire town hall meeting to run once and facilitate I'm like what the heck am I doing <laughs> I did not go to school for this oh wow yeah it's around cultural funding <laughs> so it's like there's a lot of work that I do with like um understanding cultural funding process the process in cities and cultural planning and things like that um okay yeah sure well I get that because the, the risk is not in the music because that's what you're trying to do that's what you've been doing right. Your life, right so that feels easy but when you get thrown out of what your um your passion or your calling mm-hmm. if you will uh you get thrown out of that and into something else you that's where you feel like I'm you're the so most vulnerable, vulnerable yeah I could risk. say that writing yeah. in a different genre was a risk I could say that, but I think the biggest risks come in doing the things that I'm the least confident in, but figuring out that I'm completely competent in it. Um, Right. And don't you find that those are the most uh, sort of bolstering to who you are and in knowing who you are is that I, I, I know that, you know, through my throughout my career when I was thrown into different directions or thrown into something that I didn't know I'd be good at and then I'm like well okay I mean I'll do it but I it's not my training and you do it and then you go oh well crap I was okay at that I actually that was I succeeded I okay I could do that and I felt you know you feel a little bit better about about yourself and you feel a little more uh, brave to take on a different a different thing if that comes down the pike but if you never step out and you don't allow people to push you in another direction you never find out you don't grow you don't know you don't really even know exactly you don't do that yeah so so what would you say to your 16 year old self I'd say uh, let go <laughs> first uh-huh. um yeah have a plan, but the greatest planners plan so well that they make room for flexibility. Um, mm-hmm. Good. That's great advice. And I'd say to embrace the flexibility um, because mm-hmm. I I see people who do one thing and do it really well Um And I think that that's amazing. Um, But I also sort of take a personal pride in doing a few things and also doing them all really well. Um, And I think when you're flexible, you, you can make things connect that might not seem like they connect. um, If you're sort of rigid in your thinking and rigid in your movement Um, so I really say embrace flexibility. Hey, I mean, it's like a, it's a 21st century thinking skill. So there's that. (laughs) Um, that's right. 
truth. Yeah, like I think that's it because my life has not gone according to plan in any way, except that music is still the primary pulse of my life. Sure. Yeah. That for sure. Well, I, I, and one last little thing. What do you do for spiritual practice? Do you meditate? I know mm-hmm. you mentioned prayer. Um, I'm assuming, you know, you probably still embark on a church doorstep every once in a while when you're not out singing. But are, is there a particular practice that you, that you do that you feel like has kind of saved you in times of turmoil? I meditate. Trouble? I'm also um, sort of a little bit more open. I still identify as Christian. Um, and that is something I, I think will always stay with me. Um, but I also in sort of having to do a lot of healing throughout things in life, um, discovered um, something more on the metaphysical level which doesn't negate Christianity, but just sort of blows open the, the idea of spirituality um, in, a, in a good way for me. So I, I, see, I see layers to things and I always am looking at the spiritual aspect of it, not in a warfare way or anything like that, um, but just in a, I come from, I have a different understanding of people and, and actions and reactions and the function of ego and what is love and, and things like that. So I'm just, I'm actually a much more spiritual person um, than I ever have been. Um, I do go to church and I still follow the thing that has sort of been my spiritual anchor over time, but I just, I think in this sort of new spiritual walk, and I say new because it's, you know, it's not been the majority of my life yet. Um, I just sort of make room for other people's existences around mine and just understand that they all connect in one way or another. Um, And I do a lot of meditating. I do a lot of just laying and looking at the ceiling. I have um, this wonderful therapist that I work with. I encourage everyone to have a therapist because mental health is mm-hmm. a yep. um, is a self investment. Um, but he pushes sure. me to sort of come out of myself um, a lot and sort of literally and and spiritually like step back from situations, see yourself, see how you move, see how things are moving around you, um, and just really have those out-of-body experiences, which it helps Mm -hmm. me to qualm like anxiety and things like that, um, which can plague me. I'm an artist at heart, um, and I'm really sensitive about it and and all of that stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, But I'm asking do you do any breath work? I Have do. Tried breath I work? do. Um, yeah. So I do breathing. Um, that's a part of my, when I work with my therapist, mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. about um, sort of this sense of light. And one thing that he always pushes for me is to sort of recognize uh, myself as a prism and, and also mm-hmm. as light mm-hmm. and sort of existing in both states and that 
the the highest spiritual sense of myself is light that passes through this sort of earthly prism that I exist in. It's, it, you know, it's very like heady kind yeah. of stuff, but I mm-hmm. think we need that kind of thinking that pulls us out of this sort of everyday pattern that we find ourselves in. And you need, sure, and I'll use sure, it, it's sure. my favorite word, you need things that disrupt um, that mm-hmm. disrupt your thought cycles and that disrupt these these tapes that run through our head of can't do this, can't do that, mm-hmm. don't know how this is going to happen. So yeah. you need those things, all, all the, the what, what ifs, ifs, right? And you need I, to see that there's nothing wrong with the what if, if it's coming from a healthy place, because what if works Sure. To to harm us, and it also works to set us free. Um. So you know, mm-hmm. it's that's it's. Mm-hmm. There's no one word that I have for my spiritual practice. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I see that. I, I like that. I I try to teach my students who who talk about how they have anxiety. I try to teach them breath of fire. Yeah. No, I don't know that. fire. Yeah. Yeah, breath of fire. Okay. It's a yoga practice, but it, it 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 is really great at calming what I and it's also called um a lot of yogis call yes. it the ego killer because it it will calm down like it'll tell all those voices to shut up. <laughs> right. And you do that breath of fire and mm-hmm. for about three minutes and then hold your breath a little bit and it, it, it definitely gives them a sense of more calm they've shut things out for a while, like in like what you mm-hmm. said, disrupted whatever nervousness or all the things that all the little voices that are talking, it disrupts that they have this moment of kind of reset. And, and then they, they tend to be a little clearer and, and better at their performance. And I, I love it. I do it. Um, I try to do it before I meditate because sometimes meditation is so hard. Yeah. But it is hard. I'm not, I, I won't lie to anybody and tell you, oh, you should carve out 10 minutes because meditation is going to set you I'll free. tell you it something to also consult. Hard. And it was, it was introduced to me. Her, her name has gotten a lot bigger um, in this presidential cycle, but I knew her before this. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. But um, <laughs> so I started, I was in the process of moving to New York. This this sort of thinking mm-hmm. is what helped me transition to New York with the confidence that I did. Um, I was going through a surgery, a breakup, uh, trying to figure out America's Got Talent, mm-hmm. Act Two, all of this at one time when life could have been really, really overwhelming. And I wasn't walking because my surgery was on my foot. <laughs> so. There was a lot going on. And I started reading this book called A Return to Love um, by Marianne Williamson. Mm. And the book is based off of um, some metaphysical teachings around um, A Course in Miracles, um, which, you know, Mm -hmm. a lot of people have their own controversies around. But for me, that kind of thinking and that kind of spiritual work is what I felt like started to set me free because I really started to understand some things that were functioning like the ego. Um, And I started to recognize it. It had sort of been operating quietly, 
um, and unnamed and undetected. Um, so that really helped me. And I believe that the ego can be named a number of different things and a number of different practice, spiritual practices, but the ego makes sense, um, for me. Um, and yeah, so I really started following that. I started looking at, um, A Course in Miracles, which A Return to Love is based off of, and that it really got me think it got my brain fired up because I, I feel like a lot of times we do move through our spirituality kind of mindlessly. Um, and I think that our brains are a gift. I think they are a divine gift from God to be used um, in all aspects of our life, including our spirituality um, and in our connection with him. So what I have found is by doing that kind of spiritual practice, I have more truthful conversations with God than I've ever had. And I'm not trying to say what I think would please him as opposed to what needs to be said and what needs to be worked through. Um, so I've gained more truth. And I've gained more, if anything, I've, I've gained more understanding of the faith that I've sort of grown up in and how it functions in my life. Um, so I would say. That's great. That's interesting. Yeah, if anything, I, I just say find a spiritual grounding in this work, any work that we're doing, but especially as artists especially when you're moving a lot and you're asking yourself to do a lot of different things and take a lot of different chances and risks. Um, you've got to have some kind of center to um, sort of anchor to. All right. Well, I think that's a great way to wrap us up today. Um, I just want to tell people where they can get your EP. They can get it on uh, iTunes um, or Google Amazon. Play. It's everywhere. Right? Yeah, Amazon. And, okay, good. And in by the way, she is known uh, as a artist as a dot as in the the letter A with a dot. Renee R E N E E, and uh, her her EP is called Rue, as in, um, you know, gumbo. Gumbo cooking. You always start did with Did I Rue. say I was from yeah, New Orleans? I did, yeah. <laughs> you did, yeah, yeah. And I was curious to see if you were going to say not New Orleans, Orleans. you were going to say New Orleans. <laughs> but anyway. <laughs> um, uh, and and uh, you can download her music there. And I'm sure there are all kinds of YouTube. Yeah, which is A-C-T-E-I-I. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And that you can see them on, if you didn't America, catch them on America's uh, Got Talent. Yeah. You can see, I think, yeah, <laughs> that, that show. You can see it on uh, YouTube. So, um, anyway, thank you so much for listening. And if you want to check out anything we discussed today, you can go to www.denisritterbernardini.com com and click on the high notes page to access episode notes thank you so much ashley for joining me today and being thank my you first my pleasure join me again on april 3rd where i will discuss a book called the double x brain it is all about women and how their brains age and work this is a recent new york times bestseller 
It is really good and informative. Plus, the offer gives you tips on how to keep your brain and your body working optimally as you age. Remember, our bodies are not like men's, and yet most studies are not about us, but about men. So it's great that we're seeing some changes in that arena. So come back. Also, please rate and subscribe to this podcast. It would mean so much to me. Go on, send a little bit of a review, and give us some stars. Thank you for listening. Sending you all peace, love, and courage.